0: All right. Well, we're continuing on in our series in first Peter. And today we're going to be talking about, as it says, as the title is three part harmony. And no, I'm not going to give a music lesson. I will leave that to Norm if he so chooses. I'm not talking about the Beatles or anything like that. Any examples of three part harmony or musical harmony at all. What I'm talking about is relationship harmony, unity in relationship. You see, when we get saved, When we get called into a redemptive relationship with our Lord and Savior, where we were once living in sin, once living in rebellion against God, all of a sudden we're called into harmony with God. We were living in dissonance, in cacophony with God, living in a way that was displeasing with Him. We were under His judgment. Yet when He redeems us and we experience His grace in our life, we have a harmonious relationship with Him. We live in harmony with God. Yet at that same time, others who experience God's grace are living in that harmony with God. All right, And then we are called into a community of those who have been likewise redeemed that we are to live in harmony with. So harmony between us and God, harmony between others and God, and harmony between us and others who are in harmony with God. Now that isn't always easy because living with, dealing with people is not easy. It's rife with conflict, with opinions, with personalities, with all of those things. In fact, the only way that it's possible is with the supernatural power of God in your lives. But Peter gives us some instruction here on something that's admittedly difficult. Maybe the most difficult thing about life in the church and life as a believer. So let's pray before we dig in. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would uh, speak from your word, Lord. We know that your word is instructive, that it's powerful. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, convict us, work in us, draw us closer to you in a growth uh, that conforms into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you haven't already, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 8 which reads, finally, all of you have unity of mind. And we'll just stop right there. We'll pause right there. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Finally, he's saying, because he's walked through all of these different ways in which you've been born again to a living hope, but this is how you're going to have to live on this side of eternity. You're going to have to deal with unbelievers and how you walk uh, worthily of your testimony around unbelievers. You're going to have to deal with civil government and authorities and human institutions. You're going to have to deal with workplace authorities. You're going to have to deal with family and all this stuff. And he capstones all of that by saying, finally, all of you have unity of mind. But who is the all of you? Well, the all of you he's talking to are the audience, the recipients of this letter. All of you in the church. All of you who he's addressing. All of you, finally, who belong to Christ, have unity of mind. Live in harmony. Be harmonious. Now, some of your translations translate this as be of, of one mind. You know, have unity of mind, be of one mind. The, the Greek word is literally, uh, it means same think. Have same think. Now, when we hear that, you know, unity of mind or be of one mind, I think all of us can agree conceptually that sounds pretty great, right? all the fighting that goes on in the world—like turn on the TV or any political talk show—and all it is is fighting and bickering. And it's like, wouldn't it be so nice if we just all had one mind on these things? But usually, when we say that, what do we really mean? What we really mean by that is, wouldn't it be nice if they all had my mind? That's what we all think. Wouldn't it be nice if if they all had the same ideas that I had, the unity of my mind? But what mind are we to be unified in? Are we just supposed to see where the consensus lies? Lick our fingers, stick it into the air, see which way the wind is blowing? Do we just... Take a poll. Go with the will of the majority. You know, many churches recognize that there will be, of course, disagreements of opinion, and churches have structured themselves for a utilitarian model. You know, how do we make the greatest amount of people happy and pleased and not upset? So, you know, churches sometimes model themselves off of the American political system. It's democratic. Representation, majority rules. Those are all things we grew up learning in civics are, are good, wonderful things. We want to see the will of we, the people. But is that really our will that this living organism, this church is to strive toward? Is our will really the will that we are after? I mean, is that what we pray? Do we pray our kingdom come, our will be done? I don't think so. The one mind is to be the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 Our common mind is to be Christ's mind. I mean, that's why it's so important that everyone in a church is learning and studying and knowing and growing and submitting to the Word of God we We don't get the mind of Christ just by osmosis. we don't get the mind of Christ just by feeling things very strongly in our innermost being and saying, "Oh, that must be the mind of Christ. No, we get it by knowing the Word of God. We can't be of one mind, the mind of Christ if we don't know what his mind is, and the Word of God shows us the mind of Jesus that's been my experience that people will have opinions and mindsets and sometimes be very ossified in them whether or not they are studying the Word of God, whether or not these opinions are grounded in the Word. In fact, people tend to have strong opinions about things, especially when they haven't consulted the Word of God and can't ground those opinions in the Word. And some of us, all of us are guilty at some point in time of having strong opinions and then trying to backwards engineer them into being what God's Word says. We have an opinion, then we say, well, the Word of God must agree with what I feel like right now. So let me consult Google. I'm sure there's a verse here that substantiates what I'm saying, right? We've all been there. Now, those opinions may be grounded in instinct or feelings or maybe even experience. But if that's where our opinion is based You're essentially asking everyone to be of one mind with you when your standard is intrinsically human. Be of one mind based on what standard? Based on the standard of of your own subjective feelings? Based on the understanding of, uh, of your own human understanding? Based on the standard of your own inherently flawed human reasoning? or your own subjective personal experience? Because it doesn't matter how experienced we are, how many things that we've seen, or how long we've been around to see them. Because you know what God says to all of that? What God says to man's wisdom and man's understanding? He said to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That's what God says about our finite human understanding. Our opinions are only as valid as they are in line with the mind of Christ. The only way for us to be of one mind is to be of a mind that is not our own mind. And that is the mind of Christ. And the only way to know the mind of Christ, is to study His Word, to submit our opinions fully to His Word, and instead of letting our opinions then backwards engineer into the Word, to let the Word substantiate our worldview and our point of view with His Word and allow His Holy Spirit to lead us and instruct us through His Word as we go throughout life. Life in the church. Life in Christ. Now, being of one mind, of course, doesn't mean that we infinitely compromise and we just, you know, say, okay, well, we got for the sake of unity. If, if someone feels a certain way, then I need to die to whatever I think. No, if the Bible says it, we must insist on it. If it's in the word, that's where we must be. If it's a matter of scriptural fidelity, then we do not back off of it. So in being of one mind, there's absolutely some areas where we need to be resolute. But if it's not a matter of Scripture, if it's truly just a matter of our preference or the color of the drapes or the color of the carpet or anything stylistic like that, then standing our ground is just being cantankerous. And that's not virtuous. Instead, we see the virtues that the people of God are to exhibit right here. We see filling out the rest of verse 8, we see sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You know, there are ways to have differences of opinion, ways to, to disagree on things, yet still be of one mind. There are ways to, to see things differently, but still be harmonious. But that's only possible if we're exercising those virtues that we just read. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That word sympathy the word literally means to, to share the same feeling, same feel. So, you know, we started out with a word that means same think, and now we have the word that means same feel. So if we take this very literally, he's saying, finally, all of you have same think and same feel. It almost sounds like kind of like how we imagine a caveman talking. You have same think, have same feel. But that's what this is about. Same feeling really means that we're supposed to share the joys of, and the burdens of one another. It means to rejoice with those who rejoice, to to weep with those who weep, to agonize alongside those who are agonizing. It means to make it apparent to your brothers and sisters in Christ that you truly care about what they care about. You're grieved by what they grieve for. Your attention is caught up in the same things that are catching their attention. The same burdens that burden them are the same things that burden you. And then we have brotherly love. Now, this word brotherly love we know comes from the root word Philadelphia. It, it, it's that type of love that we have for those who are closest to us, for friends, for family, for those that, you know, we naturally want to demonstrate unselfish service toward. It it comes to a point where it's not quite that that agonizing, self-sacrificial love of the will like agape, but it is a profound love. And it gets to the point where you almost naturally want to do it for somebody else because they are close to you. Do you feel a natural brotherly or sisterly compulsion to serve your fellow believer? Because... This service starts here in the church among believers. Uh, there's someone at the door. This sh- service starts before believers first. We should be naturally inclined to enjoy this service for believers. We should be naturally inclined to want to serve them. And then that should spill out to the world around us. I mean, just think about it. If we can't naturally love and serve those who are our brothers and sisters, then how can we possibly be able to love and serve those who are lost? And that's what we must be able to do. But then we see our next word here. It's a tender heart or kind-hearted in some of your translations. You know, except the, the interesting thing about this word for a tender heart or kind-hearted is that it doesn't have anything to do with a heart at all, the word itself. It's actually talking about the bowels, the guts. It's referring to internal organs. And what it means is that we're supposed to have soft guts for one another. It means that deep down, inwardly, we are supposed to feel for other people. Again, we feel for what makes them happy. We feel for what makes them grieve. When one of us is suffering, it keeps others of us up at night praying for that suffering person because we share in the suffering together. When we've hurt someone, it grieves us because we feel that hurt. We have soft guts for one another. And then lastly, we see here a humble mind. And we're back to the mind again. We, We went from The, the mind to the heart, the, the feels, the, the guts, and we're back to the mind. But what this is really talking about is just that general spirit of humility in all things. It's, as Philippians 2 says, consider others greater than ourselves. It's that sacrificial, loving service, united in truth, gracious, and considerate. It's bold, yet not harsh. It's sympathetic, yet not weak. If the, the Spirit of God is present in a group of believers, you know if we sing the, the Spirit of the Lord is, is truly in this place, well what should that look like? That should look different than just a social club. That should look different than just a group of of people out in the world that happen to have a common interest with one another that hang out together. It should look different because there is something supernatural that should be taking place. So if the Spirit of God is present in a group of believers, what should that look like collectively? Peter's answering that here. For all of you who who came into this church, And for all of you who have done the process, which probably all of us have done at some point in our life of church shopping or looking for a church or something like that, we've all asked the questions, what should a healthy church look like? You know, what should the vibe be, for lack of a better term? And we see right here again, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You know, those things are intangibles. But they're a great way to assess the health of a church. Because when we... Uh have done that church shopping before i'm sure all of you we, we've we looked at some of the superficial stuff first that's the first things we notice right like the slickness of the production the the style of the music maybe some of those things are important to us as we worship you know we do the services start on time uh does the pastor always finish right on time i'm sorry guys uh we look at those kind of things often and then sometimes we look at the more important things or the things that certainly in 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 our minds are and should be to God more important like doctrine you know statements of faith etc you know all of those things are very important we should take a look in them in order to have unity of mind we must again have the mind of Christ on these things and if there's errant doctrine then that can't be reconciled so doctrine is important but while doctrine is important it can only say so much about what a church is really like do they actually believe what they claim to believe do they live it out so these attributes right here in first peter 3 verse 8 is a great assessment of what to actually look for And if you're not seeing it in your local body, then these are attributes that you should be promoting. You should be exhorting one another to. You should be holding one another to. You should be rebuking and offering reproof when you see things that are contrary to this. This is a great assessment of what a healthy community of faith should be like. After all, Jesus said that they will know you are my disciples by your what? By your love for one another. Now, if if you're looking at this list and you're evaluating your experience here in this local church and you say, well, sometimes I see that, but sometimes I I don't, you know, I have never really quite seen this in perfection in a church. I'm sorry to tell you, but you will never find a perfect church. Maybe that's the Lord convicting you that your role in this church is to encourage one another to have this sympathy, this brotherly love, a tender heart, to foster that community here. But you will never find a perfect church. Why? Because the church is made of people. The church is made of redeemed sinners. So there will not be a perfect church. And let me tell you, if you do find a perfect church, you better leave that church as soon as you find it because the moment you enter it it won't be perfect anymore okay but is a church community actively striving toward these attributes is the spirit of the lord present is there sympathy brotherly love tender-heartedness humility You can talk all you want about looking around in the church to see if that's present in your local body, but are these things present in you? Most importantly, are we personally, am I, are you embodying these attributes? Look, the fact is, people won't always treat us with sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind be really a lot easier to live these things out if everyone else treated us this way. I mean, they certainly won't do so out in the world. They have no basis to. Why would they? And even brothers and sisters in our church family will let us down in these ways from time to time. So how do we respond to that? What, what, what do we do about that? Well, we move on to verse 9, which says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Look, that one of the greatest challenges that we come across in our lives are when we're wronged. You know, what, what do we do about that? When we've been wronged, or we perceive that we've been wronged, what what do we do about that? Man, the book of First Peter has been hitting us with so many difficult things, like. You're going to face persecution, you're going to suffer, you've been called to suffer for Christ's sake, and you're also going to be wrong. What do you do about it when you are wronged or you perceive that you've been wronged? It's difficult. Yet, one of the greatest powers we have as believers is the ability to not retaliate. It's one of the greatest powers that the Holy Spirit gives us because the Holy Spirit's power in us is at work to bridle us to control our instinctive fleshly reactions and allow us to respond with grace to situations where our flesh wants to lash out and respond in anger. In those situations, our flesh is sometimes like a growling dog at the end of a leash, you know, just ready to be released so it can go and maul someone. That's what our flesh is like sometimes. But the Holy Spirit controls us to respond appropriately. Now, a healthy, spirit-filled church is not going to be a place where where conflict never exists. Again, if you have this idea of, oh, saved sinners come together and all of a sudden everything's perfect this side of eternity, sorry to break it to you. There will be conflict even in a healthy, spirit-filled church. An absence of all conflict is not what we're ultimately looking for because, again, you simply won't find that. And sometimes conflict is even necessary. Sometimes reproof and rebuke are necessary, but it's how we respond to conflict. It's how we deal with conflict. Bottom line is it it may exist, it will exist, but no dispute, no argument, no personality conflict among believers should ever linger. They may happen, but they should not ever linger in the church. They should never linger between one believer to another. There's no justification for it whatsoever. Even if one Christian gets out of line, the loving response of other Christians should keep that problem small and short-lived. The church is no place for unresolved conflict. The Christian mouth is no place for retaliation and the Christian heart is no place for a grudge. Period. No exceptions. That's why Peter says right here, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That's really simple. in In the English language, we understand that. That's a very simple ask. But it ain't easy. Yeah, when someone's mean to us, everything in us wants to give back a double dose of meanness. That word reviling—it just means insult. In fact, some of your translations might say insult. When someone insults us, we we may not be quick on our feet to enough to insult that person back. But boy, when we get home, what do we do? When we're taking a shower, we're stewing over what they said to us, and we think, "I wish I would have said that to them." And wishing that we would have paid them back with an insult is just as sinful as if we would have been quick enough on our feet to actually say it. It says here, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. On the contrary to to repaying evil for evil, by receiving an insult and giving back an insult, on the contrary, bless. Again, that's simple. It's one word. Bless. But it ain't easy. It requires every bit of the Holy Spirit restraining our flesh. But in fact, responding that way is the very evidence that we are in fact saved. That we do have the Holy Spirit. It's evidence right there because instead of responding to these situations in the same way that everyone out in the world does, Instead of giving that same response that a hell-bound, unregenerate sinner gives, we actually respond like Christ would respond. Look, there's, there's no honor in responding to someone or to a situation like the world does. There's, there's no honor in that. Christ is not glorified in that. Instead, we're called to give a blessing instead. And this is what a blessing can look like. We are a blessing to others who wrong us when we just love them unconditionally. That in and of itself is a blessing. Even when, especially when, they're being unlovable. When we love them unconditionally. I mean, just think, how many times in in your life has someone blessed you in that way? Think all the way back to when when you were a child and, and your parents may have blessed you with love when you were being unlovable. Or your spouse has done that, or, or your friends, people in your church, or how, how about, you know, a much, much, much bigger one when God, who you were running from and disobeying, drew you to himself with his spirit and offered you unconditional love. You can offer a blessing to the person who has wronged you by loving them regardless but you can also bless them by praying for them. You can bless them by praying for them. And that can be one of the most challenging things to do in the moment, but it is also one of the most powerful in transforming your own heart. Because when you're upset at someone, if you have a grudge against someone, if someone has wronged you and you pray for them, it is hard to withhold forgiveness and to withhold grace from the object of your prayer from the person who you are petitioning to the Lord and saying, Lord, I am praying for this person. The Lord will calibrate your heart to be more like His. If they're an unbeliever, pray that that you can demonstrate Christ to them. Pray that they will find salvation. If they're a believer, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them of how they've wronged you or how they are wronging you and that you would be able to reconcile with them. Pray that God in either situation would turn them to truth and pray that God would teach you to love them the way He does. You can also be a blessing to them by by speaking life affirming and encouraging words in response to their negativity and insult. You know, we we I, I mentioned those shower internal monologues that their dialogues that we have with ourselves from like, oh I wish I would have said that. He said this, I could have said this back to him, that would have roasted him. You know what would shut up a person a lot more than you roasting them in the same sinful, fleshly, worldly way that they roasted you? Is to when when they uh, give negativity and insults and run you down for you to respond with something that is life-affirming and encouraging and spirit-filled. But lastly, you can bless the person who has wronged you by forgiving them. After all, that, that's the blessing that Peter's talking about here when he says that you may obtain a blessing. As Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And Jesus made it very clear in his parable of the unforgiving servant, if each of us does not forgive our brother from our heart, then we will not be forgiven. Our restored relationship with, with our creator should be the very basis and motivation for our restoration of relationship with others. We've been the recipients of the most profound, undeserved forgiveness and grace We should understand that so intimately that it should be easy for us to give it out to others. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We were offenders against God. We deserved wrath, yet He gave us grace. So we, of all people, have absolutely no right to hold a grudge or to withhold forgiveness from anyone. Then Peter quotes, Psalm 34, verses 12-14, through 14, right here, which just punctuates his exhortation. It's almost like he gave the sermon first and then is uh, quoting the Scripture from which the sermon comes from. And we read that right here in verses 10-12. through 12. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, I asked a couple weeks ago when uh, Peter said that we were destined to share in this suffering, you know, on this side of eternity. Like, who, who wants to sign up for suffering? Well, I'll ask you another question on the other side. Anyone in the mood to, to love life and to see good days? I mean, that sounds pretty good to me, right? Any takers? Yeah, that's what I thought. We got some takers. All right. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. But the tongue is is capable of of all sorts of destruction. James 3 lays it out pretty clearly in in there. In James 3, uh, James compares the tongue to a tiny little rudder that stirs a massive, that steers a massive ship. You know, a small bit, relatively speaking, in the mouth of a big, big horse that can control that horse. The tongue is often lacking in control. Uh, We don't control it. It's prone to sin, and it can get us into a lot of trouble. The tongue can ruin our entire witness. It can destroy relationships. Bottom line, it must be controlled by the Holy Spirit. It must be brought into submission to Christ. Yet also, our, our lips that are being talked about here, our lips must refrain from speaking deceit. Now, here's the thing. Evil that is spewed by the tongue and deceit that come from the lips come from somewhere deeper. You could amputate your tongue. You could cut off your lips. The sin is still there. They're just what our body uses to to spew it out, to broadcast it, right? I mean, you can't blame your tongue or your lips for what come out of them. The source of them is the heart. The heart must be brought under submission to Christ our Lord. That involves doing what it says here in, in verse 11, turning away from evil and doing good, seeking peace and pursuing it. Seeking peace and pursuing it. You know, seek and pursue are, are pretty strong verbs here. They're pretty aggressive, active verbs. They don't sound like passively just waiting around for for peace to happen or just pointing fingers and blaming others when that peace isn't there in the community around us. No, this implies earnestly striving for peace in every situation or environment. Wherever we are, wherever our words are spoken, they should be in pursuit of God's peace. We never need to to compromise truth for peace. Peace without truth isn't peace at all. It's just a seductive repose of a lie. Truth and peace both belong to God. And wherever we are, we should be in pursuit of it. Now, all of these things that we read, you know, from the very top, you know, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a a tender heart, a humble mind, forgiveness, you know, not repaying evil for evil. It may seem like if we just forgive unconditionally and we forget what others have done to wrong us, if we uh, bless those who insult us, then, then we've surrendered. We've waved a white flag and we're just gonna be a doormat, we're gonna get trampled over, we're always going to lose, and it's not fair. If if we're being sympathetic and tenderhearted, then maybe that means that that we're weak, you know, we've let our guard down and we're utterly defenseless. That's kind of how our world might think about this. It's kind of how our flesh might make us want to think about this. But actually, if we forgive unconditionally, if we bless those who insult us, if we are sympathetic and tender-hearted, if we keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit and turn away from evil and do good and love others unconditionally, we are actually in the most powerful place that we can possibly be. We're in the most secure place we can possibly be. How? How can we be in the most powerful place or the most secure place when we've let our guard down, when we've dropped our, our defenses and our shields and our swords, how could we be secure or powerful? Because the word gives us such an amazing reassurance right here. Verse 12, it says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. When we're in that place, the creator of the universe sees you. He cares for you. He hears your prayer. Simply put, He's got you. He's got you. But the eyes of the Lord, it's a common Old Testament phrase that that is talking about God's loving, watchful care over His people. God's got you. Yet on the contrary, it says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we had the eyes of the Lord watching on the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord is used in the Old Testament to refer to judgment. Those who disobey His word get the face. That is a very frightening thing. You know, I I don't think that that last section that's included there, the face of the Lord, is against those who do evil. I, I don't think that that section is just there so that we can feel vindicated or comforted that God will judge those who will do us wrong. I mean, that's right, He will he'll judge everyone. And that is a comfort to know that if someone is reviling us, if someone is uh, acting evilly toward us, that we don't need to take our own vengeance. We don't need to insult them because the face of the Lord is going to be on them. That is a comfort that we can take. When someone is persecuting us, the face of the Lord is on them. That is a comfort, and I don't want to understate that. But I don't think that it's only there for us to take comfort or vindication in what God is going to do to other people. I think it's there just as much to remind us lest we neglect what the Word speaks. Lest we neglect what we talked about and read today because we have our instructions right here of how we are to relate to others with sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind forgiving others, blessing those who may wrong us, all of those things, once again, I've said it at least four times, those are simple, but they ain't easy. But it's profound. Simple, not easy, but profound. It's profound because it's so not what humans do, right? Humans repay evil with evil. Humans insult those who insult them. Humans hold on to grudges and withhold forgiveness. Humans make sure that other humans get their comeuppance because humans are corrupted and lost. But Jesus came to earth and died and rose again to redeem you from that futile, dead way of living. That way, only leads to the grave. That way has no life in it. But Jesus has given us a better way. And we have the Spirit of God to enable us to walk in it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the instruction of your word. Lord, we uh, pray that all of us would be challenged by this. Lord, if there are attributes of your spirit that we need to walk in more fully to exhibit true tenderheartedness, to care for others as deeply, more deeply than we care for our own selves, to feel the needs of others, bear the burdens of others with compassion. And Lord, I just pray that you would give that to us in a supernatural overabundance. Lord, if, someone has wronged us, Lord, I just pray that you would give us the ability to forgive as you have forgiven us. Lord, if uh, there are those that, that we need to show this brotherly love to, this uh, tender heart, a humble mind, Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to do so. Lord, I pray that we would be a living testimony, this body of your transformative power at work in all of us individually, and that it would manifest collectively as a church body. I pray that you would give us a unity of mind. Give us your mind to be unified in. We give you all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.